All right, if you have your Bibles, please be open to John 16. And I'm so grateful um, for many things that Rob just led us to consider, but um, Rob was wonderfully spot on, I think, in pointing us uh, to something outside of ourselves as the source of present joy, Uh, something that can cause us to endure and to take heart. And, And I think that's exactly what we're going to see in this next passage of Scripture. And we're going to see in particular that Jesus is going to point to a very specific person outside of the disciples. And he's going to point to himself as a source of joy, as a source of comfort, as the reason why we can take heart. So as we work our way through John 16, the rest of the chapter, uh, verses 16 through 33, we're going to see two points. One, take heart. There will be sorrow, but there will be joy. Take heart, there will be sorrow, but there will be joy. And then second, take heart, there is a battle, but God wins. There is a battle, but God wins. And we're going to take these um, passage by passage. Basically, you can see the headings in your Bibles, and we're going to work with those headings. But we're going to start by reading from John 16, starting in verse 16. So if you have those Bibles open, follow along with me as I read. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is, it, what is this that you say to us a little while and you will not see me? And again in a little while and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew they wanted to ask, what they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you were asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me. And again in a little while and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. And that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. All right. In these verses, we are quickly approaching the end of Jesus' upper room discourse. Uh, We're we're reaching the end of his farewell discourse. 
which means that we are speeding towards the cross. It's, it's happening now, basically. And so there is an urgency that is building in this narrative. And so Jesus essentially had eight discourses in this larger discourse with his disciples. And now we're basically at the very end. The cross looms. And and so just like with these previous passages that we've considered this weekend, Jesus is concerned for his friends. He's concerned. And, and, And he wants to stabilize his friends. He wants to stabilize their joy. He doesn't want their joy to be robbed of them. And he wants them to endure what is imminent, what's coming. But his friends continue to be confused. They just can't quite wrap their heads around all the things that Jesus is saying. Jesus is the vine. Uh, Okay, we're supposed to love one another. Okay, Uh, we're going to be hated. The spirit is coming. And, 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 And now Jesus is going away. It's just too much for the disciples to to really be able to understand. And so uh, in this particular passage, we see that the disciples' confusion seems to center around a little phrase, and that is a little while. A little while. Jesus says that in a little while, you won't see me any longer, meaning that Jesus is about to die. He's he's about to go away. He's, He's no longer going to be near them. But... In a little while, you will see me. So up until this point, it seems that Jesus is preparing for his disciples, uh, preparing his disciples for him to be gone and to be gone, gone for the long haul. The spirit's going to come. The spirit of Jesus will come, but he is going to be gone. And so which is it? Is it a, a little while I'll be gone in a little while you'll see me or is he going to be gone His disciples are confused. And so Jesus clarifies in verse 20. Truly, truly. Which is just uh, one of those things that means you ought to pay attention. There's an uh, an emphasis. Jesus is speaking emphatically. Truly, truly. Pay attention. I want you to get this. Truly, truly, I say to you. you You will weep and lament. But the world will rejoice. Jesus wants to be clear. You're about to experience real sorrow. Something real hard. Sorrow that's going to be characterized by gut-wrenching, weeping, gnashing of teeth. It's going to feel like your soul is split in two. And to add to your misery, as you're feeling all that, the world is going to laugh at you. Your sorrow is going to be the world's joy. And Jesus wants his disciples in the midst of this to not be surprised at what's coming. He wants them to know the future so that they can endure. It's going to be bad. It's going to be real bad. When Jesus is beaten, he wants his disciples to remember this conversation. When Jesus goes before the Jewish people and they choose Barabbas over him, he wants his disciples disciples to remember this conversation. 
When Jesus is mocked, he wants his disciples to remember this conversation. And when he has a crown of thorns crushed down onto his head, he wants his disciples to remember this conversation. And when he has his hands and his feet nailed to the cross, he wants his disciples to remember this conversation. When he breathes his last breath and dies, he wants them to remember this conversation. He wants them to remember that he said, you will experience sorrow weeping and lamenting. But that's not all he said. Verse 20, Jesus certainly wants his disciples to know that sorrow is coming, yes. But he also wants them to know where their sorrow is going. Their sorrow will turn into something. And so in verse 20, Jesus says, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Your sorrow is going to turn into joy. Sorrow is coming, but so is joy. To explain this, Jesus uses an illustration. And, and in this illustration, he points to a woman in labor. And, and, and what happens when a woman is in labor? Pain, right? One of my favorite jokes uh, to tell Ray Lynn whenever I'm not feeling well, whenever I have the sniffles or I have a cold, is to say something like, now I know what it felt like when you were in labor. <laughs> and she loves it. It's, it's one of her favorite jokes. Now, why do I find that funny? Because it's ridiculous, right? Because it's so obviously untrue. It, it, it's one of those things that just makes no sense. Because we know labor pains are these incredible extreme pains, right? Mothers, expecting mothers, as they look forward to the birth of their children, it is incredibly, totally acceptable for them to be nervous and to anticipate that pain with trepidation, right? That, that, that's a hard thing to experience. And, and so Jesus is just stating the obvious. In labor, there is pain. And in that pain, you're going to experience a type of sorrow, but what do these labor pains produce? They produce a baby. And not just a baby, but the joy of a baby. A baby that gives perspective to that pain. Your sorrow is going to result in something incredible. Something that is so much better than the pain. Something that overwhelms the pain. And so Jesus summarizes the point that he's making in verse 22. You have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice and no one will take that away from you. Now I want us to see two things, two really important things from this passage and the point that I'm trying to make. I think sometimes we can take this passage, a well-known passage, and we can move too quickly to reading our circumstances into it that we miss its power. There's a way that we can superficially read this passage as if 
any sort of sorrow we experience, anything that is, that is lamentable in our, or lament-worthy in our life, it, it's just going to be for a little while and it's going to give way to joy. And, and, and so we can sort of generalize this. We can, we can turn it into a platitude and we could pat people on the back and say, your sorrow is just going to be for a little while, but, but joy is just around the corner. But the reality is there are sorrows that linger. There are sorrows that deeply affect us and affect us for a long time. I, I, I know some of you well enough to be able to know what some of those sorrows are. I certainly have those sorts of sorrows in my own life. And, and so we want to be careful not, to, not to, sup, to make this a superficial passage that is robbed of its power. It's true. It's gloriously true that God will redeem every sorrow. Every sorrow. But here in John 16, Jesus is talking about something specific. The disciples' unique sorrow is that Jesus is going to die. He is going away. And their hope is in him. And that hope is about to be extinguished at the cross. The light of the world is about to be snuffed out. And the world is going to laugh. Now think about the image that Jesus uses to explain this. He says labor pains give way to what? The joy of a child. And it provides perspective to the labor. But we have to keep in mind here that it's not just that the, the labor ends up in joy. But we, we have to keep in mind that the labor also produces joy. It produces the joy of a child. Without labor pains, there is no child that's going to be born, right? A child, child is born through labor. The joy of the baby comes through the, or the joy of the baby comes through the suffering of labor. And this has led scholars to say that the sorrow isn't replaced with joy. But sorrow will become joy. The very matter of grief becomes the matter of joy. What am I saying here? What's the matter of grief for the disciples? The grief of the cross and its results. Jesus' death. But what's the matter of joy that it produces? The cross of agony and seeming defeat become the cross of glory. In the cross of life and salvation. Jesus says, you will have sorrow now, but I will see you again and you will rejoice. Now there's an important implication here. What is the disciples' joy? Is it a mere experience no, in this, in this context, in this setting, in these verses, we see that the disciples' joy is Jesus himself. It's Jesus. Jesus is their joy. And so who appears before them? The resurrected Lord Jesus. And as he appears, they are filled with joy. And what this tells us is that the joy of the disciples is not merely a feeling but a person. 
And so this leads us to the second thing that we, we need to get from this passage. This joy of the disciples, it'll never be taken away. It will never be taken away. That's how verse 20 ends. If our joy isn't a feeling but a person, then our joy is safe and secure and will never be taken away. It becomes an indestructible joy. It becomes an ironclad joy. Now, why does all of this matter? In what way does this passage encourage us to take heart tonight? I think there's lots of reasons, there's lots of things that we can glean from a passage like this, but a few things jump out. Jesus being our joy means that we will experience joy in this life. Jesus being our joy means that we will experience joy in this life. One of the incredible promises implicit in this passage is that we have a future joy. That we have a future joy, and by future joy I mean a heavenly joy. A joy that comes in glory, a joy that we can look forward to. We have a hope that is secure, an inheritance waiting for us, imperishable, undefiled, as Darby so beautifully unpacked for us last night on the panel. Jesus stands as the firstborn from the dead, and he is the first fruits of our salvation. He shows us our future as the one who has been resurrected to life. We will be with God forever, full of joy. And that certainly puts into perspective our present pain. Glory is coming for every one of us who has believed in Jesus and who has experienced his life, experienced his salvation. But this sort of joy is a joy that breaks into the present. It's not merely a future joy. The disciples, their joy appeared to them. And it appeared to them when Jesus rose from the grave and presented himself to them and it resulted in a continued and persevering joy even in the midst of great trial, even in the midst of great suffering, even in the midst of great persecution, even in the midst of martyrdom, and terrible martyrdom at that. Jesus appearing resulted in present joy for the disciples that the chaos of the world could not take away from them. And this could be possible because Jesus himself had become their hope. Because Jesus had become their chief treasure And if he was with them, then they were good. And Grace, this joy can be ours too. That's why this matters. We can take heart because this joy can be ours today. These verses are meant to be perspective-giving verses for us today, I think. These verses are meant to tell us that Jesus has done something so incredible in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, in his ascension, that we can be full of joy today. These verses tell us that the suffering that we experience in this life, in light of the cross and resurrection, can actually be light momentary afflictions that are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. That doesn't mean that the stings that we experience because of the chaos that exists in this world, that they're not real. 
that they're not painful, that they don't really hurt, they don't stick with us. It doesn't mean that there aren't seasons for mourning and seasons of lamenting. Just this past year has been an incredible season of mourning and lamenting for me and for my family. There are seasons where that's the most appropriate thing in the world, and I think that sort of mourning and lamenting can please God. But the question that, uh, that arises in this becomes, how do we think about Jesus? How do we think about Jesus? This passage tells us that we live in the now but not yet the, the age where our hope and our joy are gloriously future, but an age where joy and hope break into the present because of what Jesus has done and because of what, who Jesus is. And so now how do we relate to Jesus? How do we think about Jesus? And really, at the heart of that question is this. Do we cherish Jesus? Do we cherish him? Do we cherish him in such a way that he is our joy? that he is our treasure and the life and the salvation that he brings results in continued joy and perspective for the difficulties that we face. If so, if Jesus is our treasure, then our joy cannot be taken away from us because Jesus cannot be taken away from us. He'll be with us forever. He's with us today, presently by his spirit as we just heard. And we'll be with him forever. And so our joy is something that is solid and something that we could grasp and something that will be with us. It's objective. And if not, I think this is one of those passages that puts forward Jesus as beautiful, as glorious, as the solution to the chaos of this world, and it bids us to gaze upon him and be moved to adore him until he is the most important thing in our lives. Sorrow is coming. Sorrow is here for many of us, right? Sorrow came for the disciples, and it was a unique sorrow. And sorrow comes for us. But joy is coming too. Joy, real joy. Not not just something that that might make us feel better, not not a psychological trick, but real joy. And that joy is already here because of Jesus and the life that he gives. So why can we take heart? Yes, sorrow is coming, but so is joy. Joy. And joy has arrived in Christ. And so this is the first reason we're, we're given to take heart from this passage. But Jesus isn't quite done. He has a final word of both instruction and exhortation for his disciples in this final section of his farewell discourse. And so I want to read that now from John 16, 25 through the end of the chapter. So if you, if you have your Bibles open, still follow along with me. I have said these things in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. And that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. 
I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone, yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. These verses we just read represent the final section of this farewell discourse, of the upper room discourse. And and you can tell Jesus is winding down his uh, speech to his friends. Uh, This hour that we talked about earlier tonight is approaching. It's the time when the Spirit is going to come and serve as the helper for his disciples. And, And this hour is zooming forward. And so, so Jesus is preparing his disciples for life without him. And, and he wants his disciples to understand a little bit of what life is going to be like in this new age, this new hour of the spirit. There's going to be a closeness to God, a closeness of God characterized by prayer. Jesus' followers can now pray to the Father in the Son through the Spirit. It's an incredible reality. Jesus is putting forward something here in, in this passage that we take for granted so often. But up until this point, this, this sort of formula was unknown. But now the disciples, they can pray to God. They can pray to the Father. They have his ear because of the Son and the power of the Spirit. And how can this be? Jesus says that his followers can pray to the Father in his name because the Father loves them. Because the Father loves them. The fathers love those who receive and love Jesus. I wish we had hours to unpack and explore this. But what a wonderful reason for us to take heart today. Why can Jesus' followers take heart? Because the Father loves them. Why can these disciples take heart in this hour of incredible need, in this hour of chaos? Because the Father loves them. Do you know that today? We talk a lot about Jesus' love. I would guess that most of us here are fairly well acquainted with Jesus' love. We know that Jesus loves us, but do you know that the Father loves you? Do you know that our Father in heaven, the Father of lights, the Father of glory, he loves you. Do you know that he loves you so much that in love he sent his only son, his only begotten son, so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting love, everlasting life. Do you know that all who would receive Jesus, the Father gives, right, gives the right to become children of God, that he receives those 
who love his son and becomes their heavenly father? Grace, let us never move past this incredible divine love that we possess on a day-by-day basis. You may not feel loved by the people in your world. You may not feel loved by your family. You may not feel loved by the world. But our Father in heaven loves us. I hope that simple truth brings comfort to your soul and causes you to take heart. Jesus' disciples, they hear this, and they respond, Oh, now we get it. And I think Jesus' um, or I think the disciples' response and Jesus' response to the disciples, recorded here in John, is meant to convey irony. In short, the disciples still don't get it, but they will. And so Jesus gives one last exhortation to his disciples. One last word to prepare them for what's coming. An hour is, in, is coming when you will experience incredible trouble. Incredible trouble. You will be scattered. You will be persecuted. You will be hated. Jesus makes a principle out of this. In this world, you will have tribulation. Or as the wonderful Adventure Week song says, in this world, you will have trouble. And, and this, is say, this saying here is not just saying you're going to have a hard time, it's going to be a difficult time. It's meant to speak to the comprehensive trouble that they are about to face. My, my mind flutters to when the news broke that the president of Afghanistan had fled the country as the Taliban was, was knocking at the door. And, and you think about what those people in Afghanistan must have felt as they heard the news that the president had fled and what that meant, the, the incoming trouble that was coming as the Taliban were going to roll into the streets. It's sort of an incomprehensible trouble, uh, a trouble that's, that's going to overwhelm all of life. And that's what Jesus is pointing to here. In this world, you will have trouble. It's a comprehensive trouble. And you're going to experience it head on. You can almost see Jesus' heart on display here. Friends, beloved, it's going to get really hard. You're in in for the battle of a lifetime. Know this. Be prepared for this. Strengthen yourself for this. As Rob pointed out just a few moments ago, Jesus cared deeply for his friends. He loved them. And this paves, all this paves the way for Jesus' final exhortation. Take heart. Take heart. Be courageous is what that means. Be firm. Be resolute. As, as literally as we can, stand beyond the world. What are the disciples to do as they stare down the barrel of the gun? They are to stand strong. They are to take heart. How? How can Jesus ask something so severe? So extraordinary of his disciples. Well, he grounds this in himself. Take heart, for I have overcome the world. 
Jesus looks forward to his death and his resurrection, and he says, my victory over death becomes your ability to take heart. The book of Colossians puts it this way. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Or as one author summarizes, only with the correct object of faith can a person be grounded in such a greater and more powerful reality than that which surrounds and threatens them. Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection become the power and the ability for the disciples to stand firm, to take heart. Because of Jesus they can take heart. And because of Jesus, we can take heart. Not only that, because of Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection, we can have present peace in the midst of this comprehensive trouble, in the midst of the chaos that swirls. This is what Jesus says. I've said these things to you so that you'll panic and you'll run, so that you'll hide now, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. I was recently reading a book uh, about having gospel-fueled hope in this life. And, and in this book, the camera sort of pans back and, and it shines the light on how Christians have experienced uh, trial and tribulation around the world and, uh, and, and, and how they've had real peace in the midst of this trial. In this book in particular, it highlighted this dear saint named Martha who's living in communist China. And, and it just walked through all of the incredible hardships that she has to experience uniquely because of her faith in Christ. Talked about, you know, the, the government busting up her church and causing it, causing it to be so that the church could barely gather together to worship. Her pastor is being thrown in jail, her husband being thrown in jail, her being threatened with jail. Talked about how she wasn't able to pass credit checks because her being a Christian messed up her social credits or her, her uh, uh, social credit score and so she couldn't get apartments. She couldn't buy bus tickets because she was a believer in Jesus. She was threatened. She was ostracized. This book just goes on and on about the unique and incredible difficulties that she faced because of her faith. But over and over again, the big point in all of this was that she had a resolved peace and a joy that persevered throughout the midst of these incredible difficulties. And she was one story but then the author started detailing all these other stories of other believers around the world. And it was a part of me that wanted to dismiss Martha and wanted to dismiss these other Christians around the world because they're really far away. They're probably enduring some sort of incredible trauma and they're just compartmentalizing. They're, they're in some way just 
using a trick or, or maybe they're sort of um, using psychological tactics to make it so that they're okay, but really they, they've got to be jacked up from all the stuff that they're experiencing. You know, for me, I simply cannot have that sort of peace if life goes that awry. But as I was in the midst of thinking these things, Martha's story zapped my mind to a story closer to home. One of my favorite professors in seminary was a man named Victor Rhee. Uh, some of you may know Dr. Rhee. Um, I took two Greek classes with him, and uh, he provided me one of the most instructive moments of my life. And just as a side, I love that man. Uh, my first three weeks in California were scary. I thought that I'd made a mistake by leaving everything behind and moving out here. It just wasn't quite what I was expecting. And Dr. Reese's class was the very first class that I had at Talbot. And uh, I, I went in full of fear, thinking I'd made a mistake. And he walked into class and he greeted us. And when he greeted us, it's like all of this fear and anxiety just washed off of me and I felt like I was home. So I've always been grateful for Dr. Reed. But he provided this incredibly, incredibly instructive moment. In my second semester Greek, Dr. Ree came into our class one day, and you could tell he was upset. Um, he seemed off, shaken. And he got ready, and then he addressed the class. And through tears, he told us that he and his wife, Gloria Ree, and you could see their names, Victor Ree, Victory, and Gloria Ree, uh, Glory they just got news that Gloria's cancer had returned. And then in a thick Korean accent, Dr. Ree said, my wife and I are so grateful that God would bless us with an opportunity to put our trust in him and suffer this trial for his glory. I've never heard something like that in my entire life. We're grateful to God. We're grateful to God that he would bless us with this trial. That God would want to use us for his glory in the midst of a trial like this. Again, Dr. Ree wasn't being naive here. He wasn't compartmentalizing. He wasn't using a psychological trick. No, he was taking heart. Jesus was his chief treasure. He knew where his hope was. And so he was able to rest in Christ and have true peace and even joy in the midst of a tragedy of tragedy, a trial of trials. And in telling this story and telling the story of Martha, I don't mean to demean anyone who has a different kind of faith, a weaker faith in these dear saints. This sort of trust in the Lord is incredible and commendable and even heroic. At the same time, it also shows us what can be ours in Christ Jesus. When Jesus tells his, his disciples, I tell you these things so that you may have peace, he, he's actually offering them peace. He's saying that you can have peace. This isn't a bait and switch. He's not offering something, dangling a carrot in front of our faces that we'll never be able to attain when he tells us to take heart, he's not throwing stuff up against the wall and seeing what sticks. No, he's saying you can take heart. You can have peace. Why? 
Because God wins. Because in Christ, Satan has been robbed of his power because the rulers and authorities have been disarmed and put to open shame at the cross. Because our life is hid in Christ. Our hope is secure. As 1 Corinthians 15 says, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection, his ascension, his humiliation and his exaltation promise us that no matter how chaotic life gets, no matter how messed up things get, no matter how much trouble we experience, we can endure, we can have peace, and we can take heart. Why? Because the chaos and the tribulation of this world do not have the final say. They will not have the final say. They will not last on until eternity. But Jesus, in his life, in his salvation, in his glory, well, they will. A friend here at Grace recently reminded me of Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Grace, we can take heart. We can. God is our refuge and he is our strength. We can take heart. Because if we abide in Christ, he'll abide in us. We can take heart because Jesus loves us. And he calls his church to love one another too. We can take heart even when the world hates us because we are walking in the footsteps of our master. We can take heart because Jesus will send the paraclete, the helper, the Holy Spirit to be with us and to be his presence We can take heart because our sorrow will turn into great joy in glory and even in the present. We can take heart because the Father loves us. And we can take heart because Jesus has overcome the world. May we take heart tonight and the days to come. No matter what trouble comes, no matter what trouble befalls us, we can take heart. May God help us. Let's pray. Father, We thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you, Lord, for the life that we have in his name and that in him we can have joy and we can have peace, that we can take heart. These things are not merely feelings that can uh, vacillate, that can come and they can go, Lord, but, but our joy and our peace, those are things that are secure because they're found in Christ. Father, I pray the fact that Jesus went to the cross, taking our sins upon his shoulders, died and was buried, and then rose to life three days later would cause us to be able to stand firm, to be courageous, to take heart. Would you encourage us by the powerful working of your spirit as you apply these words we've considered this weekend 
to our hearts. Our only hope is you, and so we entrust ourselves to you, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.